You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Sarah Sundin is a best-selling author of World War II novels, including Embers in the London Sky. Her book, The Sound of Light was a 2023 Christie Award finalist until the Leaves Fall in Paris won the Christie Award and The Sky Above Us received the Carol Award. Her novels have received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Library Journal. A mother of three adult children, Sarah lives in Southern California and teaches Sunday school and women's Bible studies. She enjoys speaking to community, church, and writers groups. And she serves as the co-director of the West Coast Christian Writers Conference. Sarah Sundin, welcome back to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you for having me back. Uh, I'm so excited. And uh, every time you come on, we're talking about a cool new book. But before we get to that, with the holiday season just behind us as we record, it'll be a little further when this releases. What is the quintessential Christmas or New Year's dish that must be on your table? Well, the funny thing is, um, my family would say unanimously Buckeyes, which um, was my grandmother's recipe. And apparently it's very popular in Ohio. And it's basically peanut butter balls dipped in chocolate. And they're amazing. And they are very labor intensive. And my grandmother's recipe makes 200 of them. And um, they are absolutely delicious. This year, I did not get to them. This year has been absolutely crazy you know you sometimes you just have these years where everything piles on and 2022 was one of those years for us so the Buckeyes did not get made but I'm very thankful that not one of my children said why didn't you make Buckeyes mom and I'd be like well let me tell you why <laughs> <laughs> they're they're all over 25 so they have no excuse if they want Buckeyes they can make them themselves they can make <laughs> their Buckeyes that's right <laughs> Oh, that's so fun. My mom, uh, she made something similar to Buckeyes, but it had Rice Krispie treats in it. So it was kind of like fluffier and crunchy. And my dad's dad loved her version of the peanut butter balls. And so if she didn't make them every Christmas, he would definitely ask. But I love that. I love I love that you've got like your grandmother's recipe that you keep doing and bring that tradition. That's really cool. And she loves sharing about it. And she'd people would ask her about it. Some people are very um, protective of their recipes, not my grandmother. And she'd always say, it's as easy as one, two, three. And she'd say one pound of butter, two pounds of peanut butter, and three pounds of powdered sugar. And so that was in the dipping chocolate. So Wow. Yeah, she always she loves saying that. It's as easy as one, two, three. <laughs> so. That is so sweet. I love that. Wow, that's a lot of sugar. No wonder that makes 200 okay. It's my biggest. I can't eat. I use my biggest mixing bowl, but it's, they're delightful. And um, so next, well, next year. Yes. Next here's, year. here's to 2024 having yeah. Buckeyes at Christmas. <laughs> yes. yes. So today we actually have a fan submitted question of all the heroes you've written over your many books. Who is your favorite and why, if you can choose one? I, I cannot. Um, that's the funny thing is, and my standard question answer to this question, um, it also go, applies to favorite books. It's, oh, I have three children and 
I don't have a favorite. I love them all equally. I see all their strengths and weaknesses. There are t- days that I like one more than the other, depending on <laughs> behavior. On a small moment there, but um, I love them all equally. And same goes with my heroes, my heroines, and my my books. I just I they're my kids. So um, and uh, I am very fond. Hugh Collingwood is the hero of Embers in the London Sky, and he was so much fun to write. So he's British. He's a BBC radio correspondent, and he's got that um, outgoing journalist love of people, love of story, love of wanting to find it out. So he brings people out, and he's just—he was just delightful to to write. A um, great sense of humor, and um, he was—he was fun. That's—it's always good when you've got a character that is fun to hang out with, because I feel like sometimes even if you're writing a character that you don't hate, um, at least as a reader, you know there may be characters that you sympathize with and you enjoy reading their story and you appreciate their growth, but they're not fun to hang out with, really. <laughs> so yeah, always nice when they're also you know just kind of cool her- characters to hang with. I love how your stories feature people from so many different backgrounds. Like you mentioned, Hugh is going to be a British guy in this one. And you've had German characters, of course, American characters from, you know, all different places around the States and coming from different backgrounds. So how do you approach writing main characters from cultures so different from yours? Um, Honestly, it scares the heck out of me. (laughs) I am a California girl and suburban California girl. So I have a very suburban California mentality. I speak totally like a California girl. And I have to remind myself, oh, I have a Southern heroine. She is not going to speak like a California girl. Um, Even a 40s person is not going to speak like 2023 California girl. So I have to be always very mindful of who they are and their voices. And I was actually for my first 12, nine books, I had only American characters. And then my 10th book, The Sea Before Us, had my first non-American heroine. And that was um, Dorothy Fairfax in The Sea Before Us. And she was British. And what I did for her is I binge watched Foil's War um, to get that really get that British voice. And um, since it was supposed to be set in the 40s, kind of some of the 40s slang, and that would also be comprehensible to my modern readers. Um, Just really being mindful that not everybody acts and thinks and talks like Americans. And um, it is difficult. I have to be very careful um, not to inject my American sensibilities into it. For Embers in the London Sky, I joke I had an English sensitivity reader and that's um, Deb Hackett, who is very active in the Christian writing community. And she is British. And she one point said, and she likes my book. She said, Hey, if you ever want something to read as a, you know, a British sensitivity reader, I said, absolutely. And she caught me on so many things. I mean, I thought, okay, I know trucks are called lorries and the trunk of a car is called the bonnet and so on and so forth. Like I, I know this stuff. Um, and I was describing, you know, they're in London during the story and I would talk about how they walk three blocks to get somewhere and they come to the intersection and she say, we don't talk about blocks. We don't talk about intersections. You know, you go to the next street, you go to the next corner. Like, I didn't know that. Um, of course we now carry our, our calendars on our phone, but we would talk about if back in the days you had a pocket calendar you carried with you as a calendar. Well, the British called a diary. And which explains why I watch all these British shows like, well, we found her diary. And I was assumed it was like the journal. And now they're talking about the calendar. 
And I'm sure some of people listening will go, how did she not know that about blocks and intersections? Because we, we know different things. So it was really helpful that Deb was able to read this and catch me on certain things. And as a plus, it turned out she um, had worked as a journalist for the BBC on the air. So she was able to give me a lot of that BBC mentality of you know how they um, how they act, how they think about the news, even what it was like wearing head, headphones. So um, any Americanisms are mine alone. Please don't blame her. <laughs> that is so neat that you had uh, that you had someone who was like so intimately connected with it. I mean, sure, having someone to read it for the British flavor, but literally having the the whole BBC behind the scenes. That's yeah. awesome. I know that was and that was that wasn't even expected. Like I wasn't looking for somebody who was the BBC. She just offered to read for Britishness, and I said yes, please. And it was it was fabulous. So how um, God arranges things like that, you know? I know, I know. In fact, I just, my next book is set in Scotland. So she just emailed me because I'm obviously sending her a free copy of the book as my thank you. And I said, how are you in, in Scottish? She said, oh, I spent some time in Scotland. I can help you out. Like, what? That's Here's wonderful. My book. <laughs> yeah. And another question from a fan. So you've currently written two series following brothers. So the Sunrise at Normandy series and the Wings of Glory series. Your Waves of Freedom series also features two brothers and a sister. And your brothers always have a great dynamic, but you have yet to write a series featuring sisters. What do you think draws you to writing brothers? And do you think you'll ever give us a sister series? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have um, somebody asked me that before and I said, I honestly don't know. I am a sister. I have a sister. We, there are two girls in my household. So I know the sister dynamic well. Um, I raised three kids so that the, the threesome, um, I think is kind of built into my mentality right now. I had two boys and a girl. And, um, but I think having watched the boys grow up together because I was so used to sister dynamics, watching how the boys interacted with each other um, and how different my daughter was being raised with two brothers than my sister and I were, were being raised with, you know, just girls. And so I think it was just, Growing, you know, having spent the last um, 30 years of my life watching this meant this um, grow them grow up before my eyes like this. I think maybe that's why I was drawn to it. Um, as for the future, who knows? Um, <laughs> the book I'm writing right now, she's a she has a sister back, she's separated from her because of the war, um, and they have a very complicated relationship, but it's not, it's more of a subplot with her, um, and her sister is not getting a storybook that I know of. So <laughs> she's pretty messed up. So that'd be, that'd be some story. But um, anyway, um, yeah. And who knows for the future right now I'm writing mostly standalones. Um, they said they tend to um, honestly, from a marketing perspective, they sell better. So um, I, we've done that for the last, my last two contracts are um, standalones um, and loosely connected for Embers in the London Sky, the next two books follow um, Aleda's two cousins, but they won't, um, they may meet at the end of the third book. I'm, tr I'm trying to figure out if I can actually work that out, um, but their stories are very disconnected from each other just because of the realities of, um, of the war and where they are. Um, they're all from the Netherlands and Aleda escapes early in the war 
And so she doesn't know what happened to her cousins. There's no way of communicating um, with a Nazi occupied country from, from England. So she doesn't know what's happening to her cousins. So we'll see <laughs> about the future. I never say never because um, when a story idea comes, it comes. Yeah, that, I feel like it would be so fun. It's it's kind of interesting. I was raised, um, I have two sisters and they're my best friends in the world. Um, but when I write, I tend to write more guy characters. And I don't know if it's because, like you mentioned, like the difference of the relationship is just kind of interesting to explore. Um, and you're just so comfortable in your own, you know, relationship with your sister that it's like, why would I write about that? It's like, it's just, it's the best thing in the world, but, you know, you're just so used to it. Um I, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that I've always loved your your brother's dynamics. Like they have complicated relationships, but in the end, you know, they usually have each other's backs in the best way. And uh, yeah, I have very much enjoyed uh, the, what, the Paxton brothers and oh, what was the other one? I can't remember their last name. The no- Novak brothers. And, um, the Novak brothers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They were, they were, yeah. they were fabulous. They were fun. Well, uh, since, as we briefly mentioned, Embers in the London Sky is a standalone, so let's go ahead and read the back cover copy. To find her child, she'll stop at nothing. To report the truth will take him deep into the flames. As she flees the German army invading the Netherlands in 1940, Aleda van der Zee Martens escapes to London to wait out the occupation. Separated from her three-year-old son, Theo, in the process, the young widow desperately searches for her little boy, even as she works for an agency responsible for evacuating children to the countryside. When German bombs set London ablaze, BBC radio correspondent Hugh Collingwood reports on the Blitz, eager to boost morale while walking the fine line between truth and censorship. But the Germans are not the only ones Londoners have to fear, as a series of murders flame up amid the ashes. The deaths hit close to home for Hugh, and Aleda needs his help to locate her missing son. As they work together, they grow closer and closer, both to each other and the answers they seek. But with bombs falling and continued killings, they may be running out of time. As if the London Blitz isn't enough challenge, let's add a missing child and a murderer hiding behind Nazi bombs. (laughs) Well, it sounds like a story that could definitely keep you up late into the night. The blurb also mentions that Hugh's challenge to report the truth without giving away his work as censored. That just automatically makes me really curious, you know, what was censorship like in this era where Britons are concerned? Well, it was really interesting reading about the BBC in World War II. And the BBC has a very interesting relationship. It's government, it has an official government charter, and it is the only broadcasting company, or it was the only broadcasting company in Britain at the time. That was it. So they had kind of a unique relationship, which they were government, but not government. So they were free of government control, but there was part of their charter that in times of war, the government could take them over completely. They did not do that in World War II, um, which is very interesting. Um, they really pr- prized um, freedom of the press. And I'm really, I was really impressed reading what they did. So early in the war, and my my book really does cover the early years. There, they were more cautious. Um, they more than anything, they didn't want to give information to the enemy. And of course, being on the radio, the enemy could hear it. So it was 
if you broadcast on the BBC, you don't even need a German spy in Britain. They could pick that up on the airwaves um, from occupied Europe. So they had to be very careful what they put on the air. And so at first the government was giving them recommendations and it was coming at them from all directions. They had um, the Admiralty and the, the army and um, they also had the civic authorities and then they had the Ministry of Information, which was really involved with, um, it would have been overall censorship. Um, so you had these different forces that were battling with the BBC and some are more um, stringent than others. And they did have some things that they required. They were not allowed to give out any weather reports. And that's because of the way that weather flows over the from the Atlantic over Britain toward Europe. So when they gave a weather report, it was giving future information to Germany, which would help them plan bombing rates and all that. So a lot of a lot of this stuff that went on in Europe at the time was battling for weather reports, which is really kind of interesting. So they weren't allowed to report any weather reports. Um, and then when the bombs started falling, they had to be very cautious because they didn't want to report where the bombs were falling, how much damage was done, because they could, Germans could use that to adjust their navigation to bomb more effectively. So they had to be very nebulous. Um, in general, the BBC self-censored. So they were in charge of their own censorship. And at first they were a little, they were probably too tight. They were being cautious. And then as the war went on, they loosened up a little bit, um, mostly experience. And also the, the fact is they were living in a, a democracy an open society and people don't like to be lied to. And if they feel like they're being peddled a bunch of rubbish, um, they'll let you know. And so there was some backlash at first where it was just like, everything's hunky-dory here. And um, the British public would say, yes, but our ships are getting sunk and our planes are coming down. And so, you know, don't, don't lie to us. So they kind of loosen up and they try to find this balance. So here is Hugh. And of course, as a reporter, he is all about the truth. I want to tell everything as it is right now in real time. They were also pioneering live reporting at the time. They had just started doing that in the late 30s. Radio was still really new. And this was the first major war that had been reported on with radio. World War One. it was pre-radio times. So this was a new technology. And the, the ability to report now and have it on the air now was revolutionary. So they were trying to figure out how do we do that? We need to protect the public by not giving information to the enemy, but we also need to be protect the public by being honest with them so they can be properly prepared. So trying to find that balance and Hugh eventually kind of comes to peace with it as learning discretion, discretion rather than censorship. So, but it, there's this balance between um, what he's hearing from above him, which is like, stop doing this nonsense to his, his, you know, how he's been raised as a reporter, which is get the truth out there. So, um, and it was, it was a lot of fun to write that, um, that um, push and pull and Hugh has a bunch of um, reporter friends and they argue about it. And it's, it was, great fun to have those those conversations and it it echoes into modern society as we have a lot of discussions nowadays about um the role of the press and 
um, the line between truth and propaganda and censorship. And we're still arguing about that today. And so I think there's a lot of meat in there that I hope people will be able to chew over and go, yeah, where, where, where do we draw the line? And when do we need to um, scale back to protect people? When do we need to be completely honest? So For sure. That's interesting. Like, like you said, it was so new and yet the question came up so early and things as basic as a weather report were like, well, you can't put that on the air because that's dangerous. And so that would, that, that would be a lot to grapple with. So I bet that was kind of cool to explore. Yeah, I think when I hear censorship, I kind of immediately was like, wow, you know, isn't censorship of the media like a bad thing? But the way you explained it, it really makes a lot of sense. I hadn't even considered that where World War II was concerned. But yeah, that's really interesting piece of history. Yeah, before GPS guided bombing and things like that, you know, they needed things like weather reports. And how did we do last time? Because it was dark, we couldn't see. Giving that feedback would be very advantageous to the enemy. So. Now, with Aleda widowed and focused on her missing son, I would imagine that places some obstacles to her romance with you. So what makes these two perfect for each other? Oh, they were so much fun. I was mentioning earlier about Hugh being this, you know, effervescent, fun character. And he was also, that made him a really good foil to Aleda because she is, um, she's a quiet person. She's an anxious person. Nowadays, we'd say she's suffering from OCD. She um, finds relief in counting things and routines and, you know, finding things in 12s and 40s and um, numbers are very important to her. So she tends to be an anxious person and, and she's missing her son. So she, her story alone could be very depressing. So from a story point of view, Hugh is a good foil to, for her because he's very upbeat and um, positive and funny. So he helps balance her, but they are very good to each other because she is also, um, she uses the Dutch word rectorze, which means straight through the sea. So she's very straightforward. And that's apparently a Dutch trait. Um, speak it like it is. And of course the English are all about reserve. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you don't say what it's really like. Yes. It is rather a lovely day. No, it's horrible. <laughs> so you know, they, so the, the, the British restraint um, versus the Dutch straightforwardness. So she, um, and he has been hiding. Um, he has asthma. And as a child, he was treated like an invalid. And he has spent all his life proving himself and hiding his infirmity so that he can succeed in life because he doesn't want people putting restrictions on and telling him what he can't do. So for him, the way to success as a correspondent was to hide his asthma. And here comes Elena and she finds out about his asthma and and she challenges him on this. And I mean, you, you talk about truth versus censorship, but you aren't truthful about this. Mm. So she she's good for him in a different way too. And um, so, you know, he helps her a lot and it you know, helps her to be hopeful um, as well as helping her in her quest to find her son. So they, they really balance each other out. And um, he's also very disorganized, which kind of goes with his personality. And she's obviously quite organized. And so she teaches him how to keep his, oh, his diary organized and things like that. So they really um, complement each other. And, and I like doing that with my heroes and my heroines. And um, I don't like to have them unequal where, you know, one person is in the position of, you know, be, having it all together. And the other one is, 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 you know, the damsel in distress. I like to have them each 
um, needing something the other has so they complement each other. Yeah, that that's I feel like what makes a good partnership is that you can both give and you both have to learn to take as well, you know, and receive what the other person has to offer. So yeah, that's that's really cool. I found that in my marriage too. We've been oh, married yeah. thirty four years, and Yay. you know sometimes it feels like. I'm the good one and he's the bad one. And they flip it around like, no, 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 he is the good one. I'm the bad one. But we're, the reality is that we each have strengths in different areas and we, we complement each other. And obviously as you know, in a long marriage, you find the same strengths that you love the most are the ones that drive you the most batty. <laughs> so, but that's a, it's a fun dynamic to play with is um, how you complement each other and how you learn to live with it. You know, use those differences for good, but also to live with them and, and to appreciate them too. Yeah, 100% learning to do that, to find that balance and to focus on the good. And and there's always bad. So there's that too, which is interesting to navigate as, as a spouse. But I'm always like, well, I have plenty of work to do on myself. So um, he and God can take care of that. <laughs> well, I think maybe one of the reasons uh, people are so fascinated by World War II is the vast scope that we have because there were so many different countries involved in different topics and, you know, just issues. And you've spent quite a bit of time writing World War II in the European theater. Did you run across anything new while researching for this book that you'd be willing to share with us? Every time I start a new book, I tell myself, oh, this one will be easier because I've written this many books. And no, no, because the other thing is I like to challenge myself. I don't want to write the same book over and over again. Um, also with World War II being very popular right now, I want to find fresh angles so that I'm not just you know one of 20 books out there on the same topic. I want to find a little bit of a fresh angle. And of course, when you have a fresh angle, um, that means that I'm exploring something that I haven't explored before. So I have written books set in England before, but usually from the American airman's point of view or, you know, Amer visiting Americans point of view. Um, I did have an American British heroine in the CB forest, but that book was set later. It was set in 1944. Um, there was the little blitz then, but a very different situation than the actual, you know, the famous London blitz. So I had never set a story during the London blitz and I'd never had a radio correspondent. I'd never had a Dutch heroine. I hadn't worked with the evacuation of children. Um, so all those different aspects were new to me. Um, I think with the evacuation of children, I think that was what really, it became an interesting subplot in the story because Aleda in her search for her son is one of the possibilities is that the people who brought him to England possibly evacuated him to the country, which had been the right thing to do at that time. And so she takes a job with the Ministry of Health, which was responsible for the government evacuations, thinking that we could help her track her, track him down. Um, in the process, she starts hearing about the situations with the children and with the parents and these families that were torn apart by the war. You send your children off to the country. They go in with complete strangers. And there was a lot of culture shock both ways. So urban children living in the country, a lot of them were impoverished children and a lot of prejudice in, for people in the country looking down on, you know, poor city people. And so some of those situations were really bad. There were obviously anytime you have a situation like that, you're going to have um, abuse. You're going to have neglect. You're going to have um, 
people, children being treated poorly. You also had situations where they, they got along famously and had a lovely time exploring the countryside. And a lot of people just kind of in the middle where the host families treated them very nicely, treated them like their own children. But obviously these children longed for home, they longed for their own families. So just trying to explore that um, spectrum that is more nuanced. Obviously at the time they really had to play up a lot of posters with, you know, rosy cheeked children playing in, in grassy meadows, like we're having a lovely time in the country, mummy. And um, they had to do that to convince parents that it was safer for the children in the country. And it was, bombs are falling, thousands of children were being killed, and it was safer for them in the country. But it didn't mean it was necessarily a positive situation for them. So it was interesting for me to hear those stories and hear the more nuanced side of what was happening with the evacuation. And the scope of it, there were over a million children and mothers who were evacuated. A million. I mean, this is just astounding. And it wasn't like, and the other thing that was interesting to me is I think we think that in September 1939, all the children evacuated to the country and they came back after VED. VE Day in May 1945, but they didn't. They were back and forth, back and forth. Um, they missed their, especially when we, they're early in the war, they declared war in September 1939. And then they had what was called the phony war, where nothing really happened in England until um, mid-1940. And so a lot of these children that evacuated, first the parents brought them home. We're not in any danger. The kids are unhappy. Let's bring them home. And then the bombs started falling and they began another round of evacuations. And then the bombs stopped falling and then the kids came home. And so you have this back and forth throughout the war. And some of the children just stayed the whole time um, in London the entire time. So it wasn't a one size fits all one story. And um, which I like, I like hearing these parts of history where it isn't quite as, you know, as cut and dry as we like to think. And I think that's makes more for interesting novel for me to write is when you can explore some of these aspects. Absolutely. And that's, that's cool that you got to kind of dive into the nuance, like um, Narnia uh, starts the Chronicles of Narnia with the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. There's like the briefest mention of the children left London because of the war. And that's like all it said. And then it dives into, you know, their story and everything. But that was a huge deal for so many children. That's cool that we get to explore that in this story. So that'll be a, a new angle that I think readers will enjoy looking at. So you kind of briefly mentioned that you're being really rough on the heroine you're currently writing. So what is this next next book that you're writing? Okay, Scylla Vanderzee is um, a latest cousin. And um, she is, she's quite a character. So she is in the Netherlands um, after the occupation, and she gets involved with the Dutch resistance. And one of her job with the Dutch resistance is to infiltrate the local Nazi party, the Dutch Nazi party. And her sister, who's messed up, is part of this Dutch Nazi party. So, but Scylla gets herself in over her head. She realizes her life's in danger and she has to get out of the Netherlands and she has to get out now. And um, being a rather impulsive person, she hears about the Germans um, recruiting spies to go to Britain. Well, she spent much of her youth in England. She speaks perfect English and she realizes she's the perfect person. So she volunteers herself to become a German spy to go to England, thinking the first thing she get, does there is she's going to um, ditch her spy radio and go live with her aunt. 
And <laughs> she's not. <laughs> Let me guess. It doesn't so quite she lands worked out that way. Never does, does it? So she lands on this co the coast of Scotland and um, is immediately accosted by our hero, um, Lachlan Mackenzie, who is in the Royal Navy. And he's home living in the Highlands. And um, of course, he's wearing a kilt in the scene because he has to. And he sees this woman come ashore and realizes she's a spy. And so he arrests her. And <laughs> you talk about a meat cute, guys. Oh, I know. It's, it's not a meat cute. So it, it's, a, it's a meat scary. And so he arrests her at the point of his little dirk. And, um, and of course, knows that she's going to be executed as a spy. But doesn't know that the British MI5 is taking all the German spies that are being arrested and trying to turn them become double agents. And of course, Scylla is all for that because she's on the Allied side anyway. She can't convince them she is, but she turns readily. And so she becomes a double agent who is assigned immediately to Scotland to work with a certain naval officer, R. Lachlan. So, well, that's going to go over well. So he has to work with this woman who he knows is a spy and he hates her. So I have kind of an enemies to lovers trope going on in the true score of that because he is convinced she's a Nazi spy and he is a, a loyal naval officer. So um, it's it's been a great fun story to write. Well, that may be one of the best enemies to lovers as far as like properly justified that I've heard in a long time. Yeah, she, she is literally the enemy. <laughs> so yes, it's it's been fun to write. So, all right. Well, listeners, Sarah is offering a copy of this novel, Embers in the London Sky. To enter, you can check out the giveaways page on our website at historicalbookworm.com. Just click on the giveaways tab, or if you check the show notes for this episode, you will find the link there. And Sarah, where can our listeners learn more about you? Well, come to my website at sarahsunden.com, and I've got links there for all my social media, and I'd love to hear from you. So come find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever it's called nowadays. I try to be a little bit everywhere, so come find me. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.